Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by two guests. First up, we have Annie Shepherd. Annie is CEO of Salix Finance, an organisation wholly owned by the UK government which provides interest-free capital to public sector bodies for energy efficiency upgrades. Welcome, Annie. Good morning. Well, good morning here, at least. There is a little bit of a time difference between the two of us. I can tell you that, that Monday goes pretty well, so uh, good luck with that where you are in the UK, Annie. Uh, and we're also joined by our own Holly Taylor, Senior Manager for Projects and Partnerships here at the Energy Efficiency Council. Welcome, Holly. Thanks for having me, Luke. So, Annie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, I do understand that the UK is having some renewed challenges on the COVID front. I hope you and your team are travelling okay. Everyone as well. We've uh, uh, just had one case in our <clears throat> staff who have uh, contacted COVID and they're quite young and they're doing okay at home. But um, that was quite sad because we, we worked really hard to try to uh, keep everyone safe during this time. And uh, mm. at the moment, London is what's called tier two. And that means that we're, if we can work from home, we do. But we've still got the opportunity to go into the office to do the things that we have to do in the office. And so we're trying all to travel safely across London. Mm-hmm. And I've got myself a new electric bike, so I cycle in great fun oh wonderful that's a relatively new addition to the uh, the vehicular options any yeah this is great fun and uh, i'm getting up to for those of you who are listening you know the old kent road it's often chock-a-block and i'm going up at 18 miles an hour and waving at the uh, the cars that are in a queue <laughs> Cutting a dashing figure, Annie. Um, That sounds great. I don't think I'd go that far. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, Holly, uh, great to have you on the show. And I think we should disclose right at the outset that you have a connection not just with the Energy Efficiency Council, but also with Annie and with Salix Finance. Yep, indeed. Uh, Salix Finance was my employer in in advance of working at the Energy Efficiency Council, and I was very, very happily working at Salix Finance and, and my partner decided to move home to Australia and I unwillingly came home with him. And, and thankfully, I've uh, found a new home that I love just as much as I loved my old one. Well, we're, we're delighted to have you and sorry to have borrowed her from you, Annie, but uh, we're, we're really happy to have Holly with us here at the Energy Efficiency Council. But I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to have both of you on the podcast today because I'm really fascinated by the Salix model. Holly's told me a bit about it, but i um, interested to, to dig in um, to what you've been achieving over the last number of years and, and what's in prospect, Annie. But before we get into that, maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself. You've been CEO of Salix since 2012. What brought you to the world of energy? efficiency financing? Uh, Well, I've been working in uh, mainly local government uh, for absolutely most of my career. And I really just wanted to make a change. And I was not an expert in energy efficiency Mm. by any stretch of the imagination. I had um, led a project in uh, Salix where we were looking at how do we improve the carbon footprint of the local authority. And this was in all aspects of the work that we did. And that had been a major introduction for me. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to um, leave big corporate organisations and go to a small little company and see whether or not the sort of principles of management and leadership that I thought worked in a large 
organisation would work in a smaller one. Mm. And Celix was had a turnover of um, 31 million a year in um, 2012. And today our turnover is about 140 million a year. Mm. And we've just started this year delivering um, a new product uh, that is funded by government and government have, have given us uh, a billion a billion pounds. I mean, it's extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary. So that, that, that little company that you wanted to uh, try out, has it actually uh, undergrown an enormous amount of growth then? I, I just grown beyond all expectations and mm. also, of course, what's more important is that the work we're doing in the UK to mm. reduce the carbon footprint um, of the public sector in the UK has gathered a, a, at a pace that none of us could have really predicted uh, eight, eight odd years ago. Well, let's dive into it because I'm, I'm sure our audience will be uh, keen to get some details about exactly what the role of Salix is. So what is the remit, Annie? Um, when did it start and, and what has it achieved? Well, the remit started way back in 2004 where government wanted to test whether or not if it gave the public sector um, interest-free loans, whether the public sector would take up that opportunity and use that to uh, reduce uh, their consumption of energy. So it was a stage when they were looking at how do we reduce the amount of energy that hospitals, universities, schools, the public, the, you know, the local authorities, how do we do that and how does that get financed? And the idea is, is that um, the loan that they have, the interest-free loan, is financed over a five to eight-year period. So only certain technologies will repay during that period. Mm. And then they repay the loan, the interest-free loan, from the savings that they've made in the reduced um, use of energy. And then after they repaid the loan, they continue to have the benefit of those savings. And the country continues to have the benefit of uh, lower demand for energy and lower carbon mm. footprint. So that mm. was, that's the basic principle of it. Um, we now have a, um, a new program. The Billion Pound Program is actually a grant program. And that program is now to really drive the decarbonisation of heat. Mm. And we're working on lots of the new technologies that means that we are driving out um, as much as possible gas because at this moment in time, of course, it is gas in our power stations and in, in our homes and our buildings that, it, that is heating the buildings. And so it's looking for the alternatives that, that work here in the climate of the UK. And the obviously very significant gaslight associated with heating in the UK and across Europe. And I know it's a subject of uh, a lot of discussion and debate in, in the UK, um, how you transition off that. I suppose this um, this new initiative, and, and we'll dive into the detail of it later, Annie, is an opportunity opportunity really for uh, those public sector entities to actually get some experience and start to scale up some of that technology. Exactly, exactly, because this is a journey, but it's a journey that's got to happen quickly. It's not, you know, mm. this is not, this cannot be a slow drain. So what we're trying to do is to 
work with the public sector to make these improvements while encouraging a greater understanding of why this is important and why it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And so um, to stick with the kind of the the fundamentals of of Salix and kind of the the traditional Salix model, as it were, I understand from speaking with Holly that um, there's the, I guess, the, the, the no interest loans and that being paid back. But Am I right in saying that you also help um, public sector entities um, set up almost a revolving fund? Yes. The other thing that we do, and this has proved really popular because we're also working, we we work in in Scotland and Wales as well. Mm. Say a public authority says we've got 2 million that we want to invest in energy efficiency over the next eight years. And we say, okay, well, we'll match that with 2 million. Mm. And so you've now got a pot of 4 million and together we can manage how you're going to use that. Because what we do as a company is we have a technical service that enables the public sector to check with us, will these new technologies deliver the reductions in um, energy usage that we're trying to achieve? So that we're checking that the selection of the 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 product that's going to be used to drive down uh, energy consumption will work and it will have a decent lifetime of working so this is not going to be a product that's going to not be working in five years time so we're looking at the lifetime survival of that product Mm. what sort of energy it will save and therefore the benefits that that public authority get from taking that interest-free money that they are managing themselves and that's a very empowering way of letting um local authorities hospitals get on with the job of decarbonizing their their uh, their buildings well, giving them a huge amount of confidence in the investments that they're making. And energy efficiency, um, I sometimes say, and is a bit of a confidence game. And uh, if you can build confidence in the market, then people will be willing to invest. Um, Holly, uh, you a- acted as a uh, relationship manager at Salix, getting um, these projects going. So uh, we had a really clear sense of what was motivating folk on, on the ground. From your perspective, in your former role, what made Salix a success? I think one of the best things about Salix is it kind of has a twofold um, role. And one is being there to give that financial support for delivering the energy efficiency upgrades. But in addition to that, there's actual real support with both effectively an account manager that works with any given client, whether that's a local council or a hospital or a university trust or the likes. And then there's also a technical team to support that. So Annie's reference to having that technical team that can review everything is particularly useful when you're dealing with smaller organisations like some of the district councils or even parish councils that you have in the UK, but even for some of the hospitals and schools around the country, because it means that, yes, they're empowered to take control themselves, but they know that they've got support from Salix to review the technical workings, to demonstrate real value in the investment. And I really like the fact that Salix's model effectively has for any given school or university or or council, they have an account manager with whom they work quite regularly. But in addition, there's a complete technical team behind that that can review everything from that technical perspective. So it's really that relationship 
that Salix offers and enables these smaller organisations to make quite substantial savings because they're there to support them. And it's definitely, having moved back to Australia, it's not something that you see here and it's definitely something that I think we could learn from here. There's a bit of complexity to the, the job there in the UK, just to dig into your reference to parish councils. I think you said, Holly, um, you've tried explaining this to me. I don't know that I've quite got my head around it. Uh, there's, quite, there's quite a lot of diversity um, in, in the sort of the types of local government entities that exist in, in the UK. Do you want to just unpack that a little bit for us? So as, as a quick unpacking, this is definitely something when I first started at Salix Finance, I needed to get my head around because I worked in councils. So in Australia, we have three levels of government. We've got the feds, we've got our states or territory governments, and we have local councils. In the UK, you have the UK government. You then have governments of the nations of uh, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, and England is governed through the UK government in much the same way that uh, the ACT and the Northern Territory government here have a lot of oversight from our federal government. There's not as much separation for England. But importantly, within the local council space, there's actually three tiers of government. And this is partly because the UK has such a rich history that has been able to maintain a hold. Um, And because of that, you have a higher level of county councils um, and underneath county council, you have district councils. And then sometimes you have parish or community councils below that. So as an example, um, you have Kent County Council, which has about 5 million people. And then under that, it has 12 district councils. And basically the services are divided between between the county council and the district council. But importantly, from a council's perspective, their largest energy um, usage comes from street lighting and both the county and the district have street lights. And thankfully, Kent County Council is one of the big leaders in this space in terms of upgrades that they have done. And indeed, some of the district councils have done some great work as well. But even underneath that, in small towns and communities, you have local parish councils. And these parish councils tend to have a few street lights around a park or a community town hall and not much else. So you go from having these really small councils that might have an annual energy bill of a couple of thousand pound all the way up to Kent County Council, which has millions and millions and millions of dollars that it's spending on electricity every year. And the complexity of this is really why something like Salix Finance works really well, because it enables us to give that support to the county councils, which have climate change strategies, which have carbon management strategies, but it also enables us to work with, or it enables uh, Annie and, and her team, my previous team, to work with local communities. And when you can work with local communities, you can start to get real change and real buy-in. And those local communities will ask their district councils and their county councils to do more upgrades. And I think that's the real power of Salix is that it enables small changes to be made as well as big ones. Strikes me, Annie, that a a client base as diverse as that would require a a fairly attenuated uh, approach to the needs of different types of organisations. Well, that's true, but I think that um, we start from a sort of a, a purpose place. We, we really are mm. a values-based company, and we start from that we don't want to exclude anyone. Mm. So a little school in Cornwall that's serving a few villages in, in quite a rural part of the, the country should be able to access our funding just as much as a big 
urban hospital that's based in the Midlands and you know it's a, a with a large uh, conurbation of people living. So we've had to design it so that everybody can feel they can access it and that we can support everyone in a way that meets their needs, but also allows us to measure okay, what, what's being, what carbon is being saved here? What finance is being saved from the public purse? And what we do at the end of all of this, and we have a, um, a part of our web is a sort of a, a, a learning hub so that um, all of our clients can access this and look at what other people are doing mm. and how that is impacting it does strike me. Uh, one of the one of the great benefits of this is just the incredible amount of experience and, and case studies and, and learnings that uh, would be generated by all this all this activity going right back to two thousand and four. Annie. Well, what we did with our case studies in relation to schools is we looked at schools as how many pupils does that school have? Okay, mm. per head that school, how much energy is the cost for each of those pupils? And how can we reduce the cost per head of what the school is spending on energy? Mm. Because after staffing costs, the most expensive thing, besides maintaining your building, is the energy bills mm. that, that organisations have. So the idea is to look at a way where we can present it in a way that individuals who are running these organizations can actually see the benefits. Mm. So we're very, very keen to tell people the cheapest energy is the energy you don't use at all. Well, uh, that's something that we're fully signed up for here at the Energy Efficiency Council, uh, Annie. So you're among friends. Um, mm. It strikes me you've got an entity in Salix Finance set up under the former Labor government and has has obviously been on a journey over the last 15 or 16 years um, uh, survived the transition to a to a conservative government not every entity um, that has been set up along you know the UK's climate journey has has made that transition we've seen the UK's green bank sort of transition into the private sector what is it about Salix finance that um, has seen it sort of find favor by it successive governments and what is the utility that it in particular is, is providing that has, has uh, got it to a position where it is on the cusp of rolling out this this big new tranche of stimulus funding and being being trusted by the government to to take on that role well there's a couple of things i think are very important the first thing is we're not a political organization mm. we're here to serve something that is not party political we're here to serve and ensure that um Salix in the way that it supports the public sector is making a contribution to what we all need to do to avoid the horrors of climate change. So I think that because we're a values-based organisation and because we've worked to help the staff understand that we are the caretakers of public money, Mm. so that public money has to be spent wisely and we have to work in a collaborative way with our partners, always demonstrating uh, mutual trust and respect, means that we have developed a way of working that uh, we're trusted. We're trusted by government, we're trusted by our customers, and Mm -hmm. we're trusted by our staff. We invest a lot in our staff. Our staff want to work for us. We invest a lot in training our staff, in equipping them for the future, and 
and helping us start to understand, I think, that they're not just here to do a job. I believe that we are creating leaders for the future because mm. this world will need people who really are understanding the threats to our, um, to our world through climate change. Holly, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? I think I can definitely say from my own experience that Salix is one of the best places I've ever worked at. Um, it's really good at expressing the values-based ethos and in, and in enabling us as employees to understand that we're contributing to something that's delivering a greater good and therefore it's really important that we understand where the organization's coming from mm-hmm. so any uh, just uh, if we can take it up a level uh, i haven't come across a body like Salix, um, which is not to say it doesn't exist. I might just not know about it. Um, and that's the point of my question, really, um, in terms of, you know, a body that provides that, that the financing element um, targeted at public sector entities, including local government, and then has the technical support element to it as well. Are you aware of other, other entities around the world that have a similar role to Salix, or is it kind of unique? Really, I mean, I've been asked over the years. I've been with Salix to go and talk to. I think I spoke at a conference of the World Bank in Austria. I, I, I was asked to do a presentation about investment um, in energy efficiency in in Dubai, and mm. so in the sort of international field that I've moved in, which which has been, you know, limited. Um, I've never found any other country that is doing what Salix is doing. Mm. And I don't know why that is, because it, it is sort of so clear to me that this is such a cost-effective model, because mm. as the loan is repaid, we're reinvesting that with other sections of the public sector. Mm-hmm. So mm. all the time, you know, our financial model is able to predict when we're having loans repaid and we're working forward to get them committed as much as possible because money sitting in our, in our, in our bank account is not working for us. It's working for us when it's out there with the customer. So we, we have a sort of, there's a business sense about how do you make this happen? Of course, what it needs is for local government or national government in our case, and of course it's the same in Wales and Scotland, to decide that they're going to take some finance and fund this and and actually take... Mm. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of, of the three nations and the courage that they've had to say, look, we're going to try this. And what has been so remarkable is the take-up has been <sighs> phenomenal. I don't <sighs> think there, there isn't a local authority in uh, England or Scotland, and we're nearly there on Wales, that hasn't taken finance from Salix. And so that's the beginning of a huge journey for people and beginning to think about that. And, of course, the other thing is we have great testimonials from people because, of course, what also makes us successful is it works. This isn't Mm. a story about, Mm. you know, let's invest some money and let's see what happens. What we know is it's tried and tested and it works. It saves money for the public authority and it gives the country the the stamina and the commitment to be doing something about how we need to reduce our consumption of energy. Mm. 
and the public centre is accountable for a lot of that energy. Of course, it means that what also government are doing is they need to look about what they're doing about homes, what they're doing in industry, what they're doing about transport. There's a whole set. All of our society needs to come together. So don't think Salix is fixing the world. We're just fixing a little bit of it or hoping to try to fix a lot more of it in the UK. Well, certainly, um, you know, there are those broader challenges, uh, absolutely. But um, it is, I think, important for government to take a leadership role and not of just course. to be lecturing uh, every, everyone else about all the things they should be doing, but actually showing how it's done. And I suppose Salix is one mechanism for doing that in the UK. Well, what it is, it's a mechanism for doing it. It's a cost-effective mechanism mm. and it's a mechanism that involves people in understanding what it is we need to, what it is we need to do. I, mean, I have this wonderful story to tell you. My staff went to visit a school. And what's happened in schools is that caretakers, those jobs are gone, this type of thing. And mm. this school is so hot. You know, people think in winter that the schools in Britain are so cold. No, this school is so hot that the way they're ventilating the building is to open the windows. So what my staff were able to do in five minutes is explain that they needed to get in and sort out the boiler and the timing on the boiler. Because when the caretaker went, the boiler is on the whole time. Mm. And so what they were able to do is simply learn about how to regulate the boiler. And then we were able to talk about, look, what would be really good is to have some radiator controls to to manage the heat. And then we can look at lighting and some lighting controls and watch your energy bills come down. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from all the things that happen, it's not about blaming people for the bad habits we've got into. It's about really trying to encourage people to move into what we need for the future. And I, I, for one, um, I don't know if this has been the case and, or you've been able to measure, measure this, but um, the experience in particular of engaging with schools and, and the kids that have, have been on that journey and, you know, potentially had that communicated to them, you know, if nothing else, they've had the benefit of being in a much more comfortable building, but perhaps for some of them along the way, they've sort of come to understand that, the, that the, you know, the thermal comfort isn't just something that just happens to them like the weather, yes. it's something that they have some control over, right? Well, of course, because one of the things that we want to do, not just not just in schools, but in universities as well. I mean, mm. how many times have you been to a hospital and you think you're in a sauna? I mean, it's just, they're too warm. And it's not, It's of course, patients have to be warm, but there's no, I've never seen a heating control for years and years, but that's changing. All of that is mm. changing. But I think that with, um, with the schools and the universities, I mean, many, many students now are looking at is this university really committed to the green agenda? And that's Mm. part of whether I'll select to be at that, because this is something that's really important to young people. And when we've been in schools and uh, we now do little prize givings and, you know, for schools that do energy efficiency and we put some books into the school library to encourage sort of greater learning about sort of energy efficiency is that, Mm. um, uh, young people are fascinated by it, and we hope that they'll get home and they'll say to their parents, we really should be turning the lights out and we really should be changing to LED and all of this sort of thing. <laughs> There's a whole education process got to go on. But 
actually you're right when you say nothing is going to work unless there's a leadership from those that we elect to leaders to help us understand, to help the whole nation understand that this is something that really matters and that it's not just talking about it, but actually we have to change the thinking and the talking about it into actions that make a difference. Mm. And what is clear is that energy efficiency makes a big difference makes an incredible difference and um which is a, a fantastic segue uh any into into 2020 and where we are now and and your very exciting announcements that you referenced earlier um with salix finance um recently being tasked with rolling out a key plank of the government's stimulus spending the public sector decarbonisation scheme and the public sector low carbon skills fund we kind of gave a, a, a little bit of a taster to those programs earlier but could you just explain to our listeners um, what is within scope within those two very significant programs well i think the best way to start is for the low carbon skills fund what government recognised is that many people in the public sector need some support to actually mm. bring forward projects because a head teacher of a school is really concerned with the education of the pupils. Mm. Energy and usage of energy is not the prime reason that the, the, the teaching staff are there. So there's a recognition that many parts of the, of the public sector need some expert help to put projects together. Mm. So the Low Carbon Skills Fund has been set up so that um, the public sector can access some funding to help them develop projects that will dramatically reduce the carbon footprint of the buildings that they work in. Mm. And then, because they would need to manage those projects, they can use that skill fund to help deliver the projects. And that fund will also help um, organisations develop their longer-term heat decarbonisation plan. Mm. How are they going to, in the longer term, as technologies change, really change to low-carbon um, low carbon heating? Now, the that is how the public sector can get support to design and develop and deliver projects. And then what's happened is, is that uh, Salix now works with central government departments. So what's happened is, is that it's not just the public sector. We're now going to be working with all of um, the government departments, all of the Ministry of Defence, Health and, and Social Care, um, mm. all, of the, all of the government departments can now access our funding. And this is to, again, drive uh, that agenda. And the billion pounds is a grant fund to enable that program to really get started Mm. and to really help all of the public sector and central government look at what needs to change to bring that carbon down. But also it's been partly a response from the Chancellor to COVID Mm. because, of course, this billion pounds will uh, stimulate jobs in in this sector, which has been badly hit by um, the COVID lockdowns. 
and getting people in this sector of work from the surveyors to the people who put in double glazing and all of this sort of thing. So the other thing is that government for the billion pounds have removed the payback period. So some of the technologies that were very expensive that pay back over the eight-year maximum period for existing air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, Mm -hmm. uh, double glazing, triple glazing, all of that is now available under this uh, billion pound scheme. You say that it's a grant program as opposed to finance. Can you just unpick that for me and how it's different to the programs you've traditionally run? Well, yes. What it means is is, uh, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch, but actually, guess what? (laughs) Actually, it's not quite free, is it? Because, of course, although the money is free for them Mm. to do this project, this is a commitment to reducing that carbon footprint so it's it's really nobody thinks that a billion pounds is going to fix everything that is going on in the public sector in uh, in the uk no way but it's going mm-hmm. to be a, a a magnificent start and it's going to get a lot of people um this scheme by the way is for england only it's not in scotland and wales um they have their own they, they have their own scheme but this is going to be significant in helping and enabling all those people who work in this industry get back into work we're two weeks in the first week, I think only about a million came in as commitments, and the second week, 35 million. So we don't just started. So it's, I think it's going to be very exciting. Lots of people are talking to us about the projects they're going to bring in, big hospital projects where they're going to be transforming their heating, their lighting, their insulation. So the, there's going to be um, there's going to be big changes, and it's partly about. Um, seeing a political leadership that is saying that we really do have to start doing these things if we are to make a contribution nationally and internationally to to step up to our responsibilities, really. That's what we have Mm. to do. Annie, can I ask a follow-up question in the nature of... Yeah, of course. ...having gone from originally... And, and apologies for taking over the reins here, Luke. Um, no, by all means. You know, having gone from having a loans program with, of interest-free finance to now having a grants program alongside that, is um, the UK government effectively thinking this grant program's a really good way for us to engage with a lot of public sector bodies that maybe previously haven't used Salix that much? And it's in many ways a carrot to bring them in. And then with time, when this initial funding runs out, you'll still have the recycled funding or, or the revolving giant Salix fund. So you'll still be able to roll out future loans. Yes, yeah. It's a bit, it's a wee bit complicated, but I'll try to explain it as much as I can. Government can't borrow from itself. So you can't have central government departments borrowing from itself. It's not the way government finance works. So it's important that there is a grant program for central government. And what the civil servants were saying to me when we launched this is that we want to be fair and transparent to the whole of the public sector. So we want to make this an opportunity that is open to all of the public sector and to central government and non-departmental public organisations, public bodies. So um, 
the offer is open to them. And of course, everybody is, is in a different place in that journey. Um, so this is a start. And what, I don't know what the future looks like, but, but the important thing that's different about this grant is this is looking at the technologies that go beyond the five to eight year payback period. So this is much more the, the longer term complex um, uh, projects that are aimed at heat decarbonization. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important that that distinction is made because, of course, the payback period for lighting a library in a, in a university, um, um, putting lighting controls, putting in some heating controls, all that can pay back in a five-year payback period. Double glazing, triple glazing, that, you know, that university can't be paid back. In, on that payback period. So what this is doing is it's opening up at a time where the UK now believes it's ready for it. Those technologies that are going to take, uh, they're going to take much, a much greater amount of money. So the loans program continues. We also do a special program with the Department of Education for schools and academies. That's continuing. Um, and uh, that's a, a special fund for academies that has about eight million pounds in it now, and that's that's a, a fund that started with about three million, and we're now recycling the loans, and it's built up over the years, and. Um, the uh, local authorities that have what I call the recycling funds and the hospitals and universities that have that, they're still continuing to use that money to do the things that they need to do because there's the low, I think they refer to it as the low-hanging fruit, but the easier things that it is to get your energy savings and then there's the more difficult things. And so we're trying to, we're trying to tackle all aspects but um, it's quite exciting, and people are very, very busy. <laughs> I can only imagine. If you like First Fuel, you'll love the Energy Efficiency Council's National Energy Efficiency Conference, delivered virtually from the 24th to the 26th of November 2020. This year's conference features an unprecedented lineup of global experts like former European Commissioner for Climate Action, Connie Hedegaard, and the International Energy Agency's Dr. Brian Motherway, as well as local leaders like Angus Taylor, Mark Butler, Lily D'Ambrosio, and many more. Full conference and one-day tickets are available, along with Early Bird and EEC member discounts. To find out more, visit eec.org.au forward slash conference. Annie, you've mentioned that there's a there's a clear focus on dealing with heat load and mm-hmm. decarbonising heat load, which, um, as as we've said, is uh, is really a, around gas um, and, and getting that gas out of the system. I know there's some discussion and debate within the UK around whether that's a an electrification journey or whether there's some a role for hydrogen down the down the pathway, given that. Um, this spending is is targeted at the near term. It's you know doing doing mm. uh, a double service as you know decarbonisation and, and stimulus. Am I, am I right in saying that the the, the fo- overriding focus is on electrification in in this instance, as you say, the ground source heat pumps and the like? 
Yes, it is. And, and, and partly that's because, of course, we know that the technologies that we'll probably be relying on in the future, they're not really quite there yet. Mm. Um, we know that battery storage has improved significantly and as and and indeed the quality of uh solar panels and their ability you know that the quality of what manufacturers are able to bring to the marketplace that mm. has improved significantly as well and also you know i think that manufacturers have taken on that one of the big resistant factors in the uk to the use of solar was how ugly they are and so that there's that, that they're sort of developing beautiful tiles that are so <laughs> that, 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 that there is there is um innovation going on in the industry that means that things will will be changing but um as Holly knows, and those of you who are listening have been to the UK, we can't rely in this country on solar <laughs> because there isn't mm. enough sunshine. That tilt of the earth uh, gives us four seasons and um, we don't get a lot of sun, even in the sunny bit of, this, uh, bit, bit of the, the year. So we have got to look in the UK economy at different alternatives. I remember when I was in Australia and I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking, of course, you know, um, air conditioning mm. is, uh, is very relevant in Australia, much less relevant in the UK. But mm. that will be true in all different parts of the world, depending on the climate that you're in. There will be different technologies that are both um, – easier to implement and easier to get results from mm. and also technologies that will be in greater demand mm. um, but of course in this in this particular country we have a harsh winter and um, people want to be warm and our buildings lack really the, the best insulation so insulation is the sort of thing that um, is also on the agenda to how do we improve buildings that they don't need to be heated so much it's not that difficult, really, is it? Well, <laughs> well, yeah. I guess it's it, at, 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 at the micro scale. It's not that difficult. It's about scaling it up and doing exactly. it quickly enough, right? Yes, it's the scaling it up and the speed and. Mm that it's not a political flavour of the year. Mm. This has got to be something that there is cross-political party commitment to and an agenda that is saying that this is work we've got to do and we can't wait 10 years to start it. We have to start now. Mm. So that sort of political commitment and a genuine understanding that... Um, we have to do what we can now and not be waiting for some miracle that we think is going to come around the corner in the form of hydrogen because we just we just don't know. And there are things that we can do now. And to your point around, you know, needing to get on with it, um, I understand, and this is this is uh, sort of outside your direct uh, remit, but I understand that there's not just the the billion dollars that's been allocated to uh, to public sector bodies to get them moving. There's a, there's also a couple of billion, I should say, pounds, <laughs> a couple of billion, a couple of billion pounds that have been um, allocated for for building upgrades of, of, of residential buildings. Am, am I correct, Annie? That's correct. Yes. It's quite complicated. It's a voucher system. It's quite complicated, but it's allowing homeowners to upgrade and uh, uh, 
and do energy efficiency things within their home. Mm. So I think it's accessing double glazing, new doors, you know, that, mm. that um, are insulate it's really about tackling as we said as i said the uh, the decarbonization of heat well holly i'm keen to dig into what the lessons from uh and his experience and, and salix's experience might be for us here in australia a, a couple of months ago you spoke at the climate council's re-energize australia event and you pointed to salix as a model that we could pick up and run with what the opportunity and, and how would we need to adapt the Salix model for it to work here in Australia? I think one thing that's really obvious about the Salix model is it's quite easy in terms of the idea behind it and the vision is quite easy to replicate. It's starting with the easy, simple, sensible things first and, and that's energy efficiency and that that measure of going from the perspective of a public sector body or an organisation doing those low-hanging fruit pieces, doing LED upgrades in the first instance makes a lot of sense. But with time, you build that up. And, and one thing I love about Salix is it's an energy efficiency financing program, but indeed there are now with, with leading public sector bodies in the UK, they've moved to starting to look at solar and they're doing that once they've done the energy efficiency upgrades. And obviously Australia has done the complete reverse of that and gone gangbusters on, on solar PV, but it's the message still rings true of let's do the easy things first. Now, obviously there are clear differences in governance between the UK and Australia, but Overall, the idea of having a central government body or central government program that's funded by central government that enables public sector bodies to demonstrate that leadership to, um, you know, bring support in the local communities is a really good idea. And it's something that will enable us to achieve quite sub- substantial gains quite quickly. And indeed, that leadership piece is really important because if you're dealing with the local councils on the ground, with the schools on the ground, it's starting that community conversation. Mm. And when our governments, and in particular our state governments here in Australia, talk about getting to net zero by 2050, you do get a lot of backlash from community of going, well, you know, how are we going to do that? How are we going to pay for that? And the great thing about a program like Salix Finance is it's demonstrating we're not even really paying for this. We're saving government money with this program. So it's not costing us money. Yep, it's some money up front, but it pays for itself. And the best thing is, is the savings that are used get to pay for additional upgrades. And with time, that means you can transition to the new um, the new technologies. So you can start off with your LED and LED lights and your insulation and your boilers. But with time, we can move to doing renewable energy. We can move to batteries. We can move to more complicated systems. And that's really important that we do share that story, that it is actually quite simple. And Salix experience in the UK demonstrates it's not that complicated and it's had some real substantial wins, both in terms of financial savings for the public purse, but also in terms of carbon savings. The other thing you could do, of course, is you could say, let's start with, as Salix started, let's start with the universities. Hmm. You know, how many universities are there in in um, Australia? Okay, how do we go about greening our, 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 uh, our universities. Sometimes I think with these things, you really have to take them in bite-sized chunks about how do we do this? Mm. And then how do we then expand that to, should we be saying to 
how, how are we going to do street lighting across the nation? Because street lighting has huge savings. And, of course, it improves um, the atmosphere in sort of communities, people feeling safe or whatever. So, actually, the wonderful thing is if Australia was to do something like this, they're, they're not starting from a pit where, say, it started in 2004 with a blank sheet of paper. There is actually lots of evidence out there that this stuff works and it wouldn't be that difficult. And it doesn't need too much to get started. And also, of course, once you do get started, organisations, as we've found from, from um, uh, local government, by us saying, look, we'll put in, what are you prepared to put in? We'll match that. That that means that people are not waiting around just for government to hand out money, but actually to work in partnership for what we all know is the greater good. Just needs a little bit of commitment. And a bit of money. And, and that bit of leadership, realistically, Luke, could come from the federal government or it could come from the state governments here in Australia. Um, and Annie's right. We could um, start with different subsectors within the, you know, within the public sector. And that's really important that we take something that, that's easy. And obviously there's huge savings to be made across local councils in Australia because there's far more local councils and local council buildings than there are universities. But in the context of a COVID-19 recovery, we know that our universities are really struggling and investing in a university upgrade program could be really beneficial because it's going to reduce the costs for our universities, enabling them to reinvest some of that operational expenditure into programs that will support the ongoing health of our tertiary education sector. And this is the type of stuff that in the context of COVID-19, it really opens up some great opportunities. And it's wonderful to hear Annie talking about how the new grant program is looking at some of those more more expensive options like triple and double glazed, glazed windows because these are quite jobs-intensive upgrades. And obviously, they've got longer paybacks, but they do have real carbon savings. But importantly, they're putting boots on the ground and getting people back to work. And in that context, there's great opportunity here in Australia to roll out a similar program that can really regenerate our economy whilst building a brighter and greener future for us all. Well, indeed. And the... Um and the opportunity around universities is a really interesting one, uh, Annie. Uh, I imagine, like in the UK, there are a bunch of universities here in Australia that have made net zero commitments and quite aggressive ones, um, mm-hmm. achieving net zero in their operations by by twenty thirty and the like. And uh, while they've made those commitments, they're now um, working pretty hard to work out how they're going to achieve them in a in a cost effective way. And so, I think would would really welcome a body that was able to work with them to uh, to bring down their uh, their operation energy use and, and make the, the transition to uh, zero carbon electricity that little bit easier. Um, it also strikes me that there's a huge role in Australia um, for the, the the skills element of the package um, that you outlined. And when I think yes. about local governments, um, you know, we have we, we tend to have quite sophisticated local governments with well-resourced sustainability teams in the centre of our cities. And then, you know, uh, as, as we move out into the outer rim and then out into the regions, um, they just don't have the resources or the expertise available for that for, to, to have that kind of in-house resource or, or team um, uh, within the, the council itself. So the ability to call on external experts to support them along that journey could be incredibly powerful. 
Well, I think so. I mean, I know that you're a big islands and you're not just one island, you've got islands. Um, and uh, we're an island as well, but mm. we're much, much smaller. And believe you me, we have the same problem about how do you get the expertise in the right place, delivering mm. Uh, mm. and helping to support these uh, these complex problems. but Because also people need to be assured if they're going to be spending this money that they're going to get the results. And what they want to see is the result in their energy bill. Yep. And so that that is that's really, really important. So that's why we have this sort of assurance and this technical assurance. Look, folks, this really does work. I would say that the clear win for me of Salix in terms of why it works is it's not just the money. It's that facilitation. And that facilitation process with technical support is definitely a role um, that central government plays quite well through Salix Finance in the UK. And it's something that indeed central government could do quite well here in Australia in supporting those smaller organisations that just do need the support. So they might want to do the upgrades, but they don't have the confidence in doing so and, and the confidence that they'll make those savings. And I think that's probably the, the strongest um, example of why Salix works so well is because of that facilitation role. I just find it fascinating. The uh, it's almost there's there's kind of a, a merry image happening between Australia and, and the UK on this front because uh, Annie, we have um, in a, the, our two largest states in New South Wales and, and Victoria, we've had we've had programs that have been held within the state government that have been effectively financing uh, centralised facilitation and an expert panel that that works with departments. Um, to um, to upgrade the facilities, whether it's hospitals or schools or the like. Um, and they're relatively mature programs. They've both been around for around a decade now. And when we've been advocating in this space as the Energy Efficiency Council, our suggestion to state governments has been to expand those programs out to cover local governments. And it seems that the story you're telling in the UK is it's almost gone the other way, is that you've had this fairly sophisticated offering to local governments um, and you're now bringing your expertise in to, to, to assist uh, central government with yes. their departments. <laughs> yeah. Well, not we don't always do things in the same order. But, um, but I think it's important that we do the right things, even if they're not in the right order. You know what I mean? Um, I think that, yes, look, um, we di- we've got different forms of government, different ways of making sort of decisions. I think that um, what is so interesting about all the organisations who are making commitments for net zero and making mm. a cont- contribution to climate change is that there isn't any other, this, ha- this has to happen. And so, of course, what governments have to look at is how do we fund this in a way that is value for money? Mm. That means that we are spending public money wisely, mm. but, it, but get the results that are needed mm. for our nation mm. and be able to stand with integrity on international platforms and say this is the contribution that our nation is making to this Mm. world effort that we have to make now 
we're very good. I mean, there's this wonderful philosopher who's been talking about how great we are as human beings in local communities, getting on with one another and making things happen locally. Mm. And we can and we can expand that into bigger communities. And how much more difficult it is for us to internationally cooperate. Mm. And yet, for global warming, we've got to find all these bridges from the local action right up to the international commitment to make the difference. But at this stage of where we are as a world on the journey towards how do we save where we live for our future generations. It seems to me that leadership within each nation is to be looking at what can we do? What can we do now in the situation that we're in for the people that we are responsible for to make the difference that we need to make? And that seems to me to be not that difficult but we make it difficult because it's so big it seems where do you start and i think that what was so wonderful about the start for salix it was a very simple financial model here's money it's interest-free you have it on a loan once you've implemented all of your project you start paying it back all of that will get reinvested and we're going to start with quite a modest sum. Mm. I do wish you luck with what you're doing. It's such important work. Mm. And uh, I hope if any of the, if any of the politicians who are listening can make a difference and think about it, it's just to grab a small idea and think that let's make this work. Well, it's something I passionately believe and is that our task is to find all the good ideas from around the world and, and scale them up as quickly as possible. And um, Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it's been such a pleasure um, digging into this one with you. Uh, Holly and I have had a number of chats about Salix Finance, but really doing the deep dive and, and hearing the history, and but also hearing what's ahead and, and hearing how the, go- the government there in the UK is, is utilising Salix as a vehicle for that for that next stage in the uh, in the recovery journey and the decarbonising journey has certainly been uh, inspiring for me. So, so thank you for your time, Annie, and, and we we hope to stay in touch and, and wish you uh, every success as you put your shoulders to the wheel over the next next period of time. Well, um, it's been so exhausting getting up and running. I'm thinking of having to lie down, actually. <laughs> so, there's, there's so much to do. And uh, as I leave this conversation with you, I can see in the corridor my my lovely electric bike and I'm on my way into the office today. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, well, thank you, Annie, and thank you to Holly for joining us. It's great to have you with us as a, as a guide and a bit of a bridge between, between the two organisations. So, so thanks to you as well. Thanks for having us. That wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. You'll find Salix Finance exactly where you'd expect to, at Salix Finance. Holly is at Holly M. Taylor underscore, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. 
And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can find us all on LinkedIn or email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au. And make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And of course, many episodes of First Fuel are broadcast as they're recorded, so you can jump on Zoom and listen in live. For a full listing of upcoming recording times, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us, and we'll catch you soon. Thank you.